This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to a special crossover episode of the Human Action Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. But today, as I mentioned, we are also uh, broadcasting to a crossover audience on my Thursday radio show in Tampa, Florida on Money Talk 1010. It's called Good Money with Jeff Deist. And so I welcome our audience from that show. Now, what's happening? I don't want anybody to think I'm lazy or va even vacationing on Thanksgiving. Here's the thing is the station is closed and the production crew is off for Thanksgiving, deservedly so. They work very hard and they work very early in the morning. And as a result, we had a choice between simply broadcasting or rebroadcasting an old show or combining the, my weekly podcast, which is called the Human Action Podcast, for our radio listeners with the radio show itself. So if you are a Money Talk 1010 listener to Good Money with Jeff Dice, you're interested more broadly in the topic of monetary policy and what's going on with the economy and inflation and all these related topics, just go to YouTube, check out the Human Action Podcast, and you'll see that me and Dr. Murphy do a show every week from the Mises Institute. But if you're a normal podcast audience and you want to listen live to our radio show every Thursday, the Good Money Show with Jeff Dice, just Google Money Talk 1010 in Tampa, Florida, and you can find the show there live. So all that said, with this crossover, you know, Bob, what I really wanted to talk about today sort of builds on shows that you and I have done about subjects like defaulting on U.S. debt, but also shows I've been doing on the radio about the political landscape in this country and how unserious it is. So my takeaway from this recent bout of midterm elections was that we have become a very deeply unserious electorate that we are in no way, no how, even attempting to grapple with the big existential uh, or technical or fundamental programmatic problems in this country like defense spending, like entitlement spending, like debt, deficits, and the dollar and monetary policy. And as a result, we are sort of wasting our time on all these so-called social issues, fighting over things like LGBT and trans and guns and CRT and, and other issues while the structural economic issues go unaddressed. And so I thought you and I could give the listeners this week a little taste of, you know, from a structural perspective, what would it really take to resuscitate the U.S. economy? And are we even close to having the political will for that? I think we have to look at this with a clear eye. So for starters, uh, I know that Mark Thornton, who's also a senior fellow here at the Mises Institute, wrote an article a few days ago called The Real Solution to the Coming Economic Crisis. So, Bob, why don't you give us your take on, on where we are, for starters? Well, sure. And I, I just want to echo what you said, that the American people really have just, like you said, people are flipping out about Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Like, that's been a thing, you know, for a week now at this point, easily, when surely it seems like on planet Earth there's more important things to be grappling with. Um Another just example of, of this sort of issue or, or phenomenon is that if you remember back when Obama first came in and they had his you know uh, recovery package, a stimulus plan, they intentionally made it less than a trillion dollars because they were afraid of scaring the, the public, that they thought that that would just be too big. And so they made it real big, but I know that there were internal discussions because like in, in terms of the Keynesian logic, it should have been more than a trillion, you know, according to the way they, they run those, but they didn't because it was politically vetoed saying... It, that the Republicans will just hurt. Whereas then they eventually had, I think, four years in a row where the deficit itself was bigger than a trillion. So people just have been desensitized. And the, and the you know, at the time, the sky didn't fall and there were all these right wingers warning about the dollar crashing. It didn't happen. So 
I think, yeah, we're in a place now where they just, it, they don't care. They don't care about entitlements. Oh, you guys have been complaining about Social Security for years. Who, who cares? So, I, unfortunately, I think it is going to take a major crisis to just shock everybody. And even though that did happen theoretically under COVID, where people go on the store and the shelves are empty and th- things like that, it's, I think they just made excuses for that and now we're back to normal in their mind. So, um, I think the Fed, what it did, if you would all buy the Austrian theory of the business cycle, and think, okay, like the housing boom years, that was partly due at least to monetary policy. Look out the crisis that led to in 08. Then what they did after that and the, the employee inflation we're seeing now, but what they then did in following that with COVID, to me, they've set up what's going to be, you know, a, a bus that's going to make the previous ones look like a walk in the park. You know, if, if, the, if the theory, if the Austrian diagnosis is at all correct, that's sort of an unavoidable conclusion because what they have done since COVID uh, in terms of monetary injection of just pumping in money, pushing down interest rates. I mean, it's, it's really just unprecedented. So like I say, unfortunately, if you don't think pumping the money full of artificial uh, or pumping the economy full of artificial money and having artificially low interest rates is a good idea, then they really have just set us up for a, a giant crash. But I'd like what you're trying to say in this episode is it's not just fatalistic. There's things that could be done to help cushion the blow and we could get through it. But unfortunately, I don't think that the government and the people at the Federal Reserve are going to do those things. Well, when it comes to housing, how we define crisis, I think, varies. It might vary based on your age, might vary based on your employment, it might vary based on where you live. Uh, certainly in Tampa, Florida, we're in a housing crisis of sorts uh, over the past couple of years, especially since COVID. But even before then, a lot of people were moving to Florida. But in terms of rent increases, housing price increases, and now, uh, mortgage interest rate increases. You put all those three things together, and there's a lot of folks in Hillsborough County, for example, Pinellas County around Tampa, uh, who have received essentially eviction notices in terms of a rent increase that they're not going to be able to handle. So I guess the definition of a crisis varies. A crisis is when you lose your job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the bigger picture, it might not take an economic crisis of the kind we had, let's say, in 2008, of the kind we had, let's say, 1987, 1929, um, various stock market crashes, for example, uh, to nonetheless show that the U.S. economy is in rough shape. And, and one thing I can point out is, as we've been harping on in the show, if interest rates continue to rise to historical norms of, let's say, 5 to 7 percent, on uh, the Fed funds rate, which is the, a particular rate that the Federal Reserve Bank attempts to target, then interest on the national debt, without any kind of stock market crash, without any net employment crisis or GDP crisis or, or recession or anything like that, just simply by interest rates rising alone, uh, the U.S. CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, points out that pretty soon, let's say in the next three to five years, interest on the national debt is going to be well over a trillion dollars which means it'll be the single biggest budget item every year for congressmen and congresswomen and senators that you send to Washington. So all those things you want them to pay for, like Social Security and Medicare and the military and the Army Corps of Engineers and flood insurance and uh, the, you know, the U.S. Department of Education and the EPA and all these vast government programs, all of those things will be dwarfed just by interest, interest payments, service on the national debt, which is akin to, you know, our listening audience as a homeowner saying that the interest on your mortgage and credit cards is the biggest item in your monthly budget 
every every month, bigger than let's say your mortgage payment or your rent. Uh, so that's that. I think alone, Bob, is an underappreciated danger. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and that's partly you know what I alluded to a few minutes ago about how. Like I said, and, and not to just make it about the Democrats, but when Trump was in office too, of course they ran big budget deficits, Absolutely. especially at the end there. But again, it's the Obama years, four years in a row of trillion dollar deficits, not not the budget, just how much mm-hmm. more they spent than they took in those years. That would have been inconceivable, you know. Or like I remember just into the George W. Bush years, and they were saying how irresponsible it was when he gave a tax cut, you know, sent checks like what was it three hundred fifty dollars or something to everybody, and it was in the billions, you know, many billions of dollars, and that was considered outrageously ir- irresponsible. But it just they got numb to it. And I think it's because, hey, nothing bad seemed to happen. And so, oh, I guess maybe we can do this. Like we Mm -hmm. we understand the goodies and and why it's nice to just run run a bunch of government spending and and give handouts to people. And what was happening, as you say, Jeff, is that interest rates were at rock bottom levels because that was in the wake of the 2008 crisis. And so, you know, the analogy I use is as long as you keep getting offers in the mail to roll over your credit card balances, you know, some new card to the zero percent APR for 12 months and you can be running up huge credit card debt, buying plasma screen TVs and whatever. And it, it doesn't, <laughs> the pain doesn't kick in. It's when those offers stop. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the rates re- adjust and then you realize, uh Oh, maybe living beyond my means. So uh, extravagantly for several years in a row, wasn't a good idea. So I think that's now where we are, where they are. And as you say, just to make sure the listeners caught that we're not talking about there being a crisis in interest rates spiking to get inflation under control, like the way that happened in the late seventies, early eighties. We're just talking about gently rates moving back up towards more normal levels because they've been at really abnormally low levels for the past 10 years, let's say. And that's all it would take for this, these numbers now to just be, I mean, the, the government's debt relative to the size of the economy is the biggest as it was since world war two. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. just for people to understand that and it's projected just to keep on growing too. And it's not like we just fought a world war. Like back then, you you know, say what you will about the the foreign policy and whatnot, but you can kind of understand why that would be deemed a fiscally responsible move to say, okay, if the world's at war, maybe, you know, we can afford to rump a huge debt. But then they sort of got things relatively under control and the debt, at least as a share of the economy, shrunk over time. Whereas now there's no end in sight to this. You look at the CBO's projections and it just keeps going up. Under business as usual, if there's an economic crisis that I think is going to happen, it's going to make it even worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at U.S. federal spending over the past couple of years, let's say the COVID years, the, those interest payments, interest service on outstanding Treasury debt was below $400 billion. And that's because if you go and look at all the outstanding Treasury debt, you know whether it's short term or long term, and weight it based on how much it's worth, uh, a lot of that was issued under very low interest rates since, let's say, the crash of 2008. So uh, with just rising up to, let's say, averaging 5 to 7%, again, that $400 billion number would go to maybe triple quite easily, $1.2 billion. And that would become a real problem because we're already um, amassing single-year deficits of more than a trillion dollars, and those are expected to go way up. So we are going to... Link in the show notes to an article written by Dr. Mark Thornton, also at the Mises Institute, called The Real Solution to the Coming Economic Crisis. And I want to talk about this a little bit, Bob, because we can walk through uh, some of these bullet points I'm developing uh, for how we fix this. And, um, you know, whether these are feasible technically or mathematically is a different question from whether they are 
politically realistic or palatable. So two separate things. But nonetheless, I think it's important and worthwhile to actually walk through technically what might fix the U.S. economy in the sense that, at least as, as you and I believe, uh, it would be built on something fundamental rather than built on this sort of vapors of fiscal and monetary interventions. In other words, the, the, the U.S. government is supposed to be a referee in the economy. The central bank is supposed to be a referee in the economy. We're not supposed to wake up uh, every morning, and I'm paraphrasing the great Jim Grant, uh, someone you should know of Jim of Grant's interest rate observer. Jim Grant says, you know, it'd be like if we woke up every morning after a baseball game and all we ever talked about was the umpires. And that's what we tend to do in America. We tend to talk about our politicians and our central bankers more than the actual, you know, drivers of the economy, the people who are supposed to be out there building things and doing things. And when we do talk about them, the Jeff Bezoses or the Sam Bankman Freeds of this FTX disaster, we tend to talk about them in negative ways. Or Elon Musk, you know, these are bad, uh, bad crony capitalist billionaires. These are, uh, you know, like characters in a uh, Bond movie or something like that, evil villains. We don't talk much about business uh, simply as a force for good in the U.S. And we virtually never talk about the idea that profits are socially beneficial. Aha. Now, there is something that, that goes absolutely unsaid. But but let, let me get your reaction, Bob, to... Uh, a list of bullet points I put together on what it would really take to rebuild the U.S. economy. And, and there'd be some pain here, but I think we can all agree we'd rather have that pain put upon us than on our children or grandchildren. So first of all, we're talking about that $31 trillion in debt and all the interest that comes off of that. How about we start a program of selling federal land and other federal assets like mineral rights and timber and all kinds of things uh, to wipe some of that debt off our books and drive that interest rate down to something manageable. Actually, that right, interest I, expense, I should say, down to something manageable. Yeah, and this is something, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. This is something that I always say every time they have a budget impact, a debt ceiling argument, right? And that, you know, the both sides, they, they put their cards down and they, they pose and, and give speeches for the public and try to throw red meat to their bases when they all know they're going to vote to increase the, the debt ceiling. Yes. But, you know, and, and they, and one of the points they make is, well, it would be inconceivable for us to default on our, we have to make our, you know, pay the bondholders. And so my point is that, well, they do have a lot of leeway. They could just do a mass sale of federal assets in order to raise money to, you know, cover the, the shortfall. In other words, that they're, there's things they could do to come up with cash besides simply borrow more money, just like any other business or you know household knows that if you, gee, if you owe some people some money, the, it's not that you have to just go borrow it. You can sell some of your stuff to get to raise money to pay the people what you owe them. And so the U.S. federal government owns lots of property. As you say, they have all sorts of mineral rights. Um, they had they're sitting on all sorts of oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They have all sorts of now. Some people can quibble or disagree strategically, or, or say it's you know maybe not the right thing to do in terms of policy. But in theory, they own a bunch of gold. <laughs> so some people say maybe it's not in there. But there's lots of things they own. Tons of land, especially in the West, that the federal government owns um, around Alaska. You know, Anwar, all sorts of things that are off limits. They could open up those leasing rights. All sorts of. I just did a back of the envelope calculation a few years ago and came up with a way they could easily raise a trillion dollars, like just you know back of the envelope kind of things um, off the top of my head, basically. Um, so they could easily come up with a trillion dollars without even crashing the market, without even you know just flooding certain things. They could do it over time. So 
that's a no brainer to me. And also besides just them coming up with money in a way to, you know, help ease and not have to raise taxes or borrow more until they can bring spending down. Besides that, it's, it's socially beneficial. It gets those resources back into private hands. It's not good that so much real estate is owned by the federal government. They're not allocating it in the way that, you know, would best serve consumers. So that to be another benefit of this is not merely a fiscal thing, actually in terms of getting resources to where they should be, privatizing is the way to go. Well, and again, even if you do think it is good for the federal government to own vast tracts of land in the West, and own something like 80 or 90% in Nevada, for example, what we're talking about now is not politics. We're talking about mechanical approaches to actually solving some of the economic problems in America. And so as Bob points out, if any organization or family found itself uh, deeply in debt, the first thing it would do would be to sell assets. If you had a vacation home, it would make more sense to sell your va- your vacation home than to go borrow more money. Um, so this never seems to come up. But this, probably more than anything else, is the realistic way to address that $31 trillion in debt. It's far more realistic uh, than entitlement cuts, which we shall get to. But nonetheless, um, number two, what about simply a radical reduction in federal spending somewhere down in the two, three trillion dollars a year range, which would be depending maybe a trillion below what we bring in in tax revenue. So that alone would not only stop the debt from increasing, but begin to decrease it by, you know, maybe a trillion a year or something like that. Um, what, what would that look like? A dramatic cut, maybe a 50 percent cut in federal spending. Well, it's, I think it, the specific impact would probably matter, you know, where exactly they cut. But one idea that I've had for a while, just to go along with what you're saying here, is to just lay off a bunch of federal employees who are doing things that are clearly unconstitutional. And, you know, and that right there. And and what I would want to do also, though, is, is um, you know, you could even phase it out because like, you might say, oh, that'd be too painful to people and just say, OK, you know, for this group over here who've been working in this area for a really long time, mm-hmm. you get one year's salary and then that's it. But but you, you'd like to stop coming to work. Right. Because you can't continue to do unconstitutional things. So stop coming into the office, but we'll pay you for a year still. And then for some other group, maybe you'd say, we'll pay you for the next six months or we'll, we'll give you half pay for a year. I mean, whatever, you know, you can structure it that way so that people who have a whole livelihood and career that's invested in this particular thing, it would, it would be hard for them on a dime to go do something else. But yeah. the important thing is you wouldn't say until you get another job. No, just you have a year that we're going to pay you 50 percent or whatever the number is for the category. And if you get a job tomorrow, that's good. Good for you. Like, in other words, you don't want them to have a reason to not find another job yeah, in the private sector, sure. get them to working right away. And that would be great. So in terms of like the official numbers, that might look like there's a bad recession because GDP would drop because government spending would drop. But in terms of the actual you know, benefits to the economy, it would be fine that those instead of going, you would have millions of employees instead of going and doing things that actively hurt the economy and make people's lives miserable, like the BATF or DEA or whatever they would be going and doing something like, you know, bringing food to people in a restaurant or, or whatever, working in a factory and building cars. So they would be doing socially useful things. So it's, it's, it's difficult to overstate how beneficial that would be, even though officially the numbers might look like in the beginning that there was a bad recession. So the unemployment rate would, would spike because there'd be a bunch of laid off employees who are now looking for work. But very quickly, you know, the, the economy would absorb 
them back into the private sector that, you know, entrepreneurs would realize that would be a great signal. Wow. Federal spending is cut this much. That means that that's going to be a lot lower going forward relative to what it otherwise would have been. So therefore they're probably not going to tax us as much. There'd be a lot more, you know, as, as borrowing went down because spending went down, that would mean there's a lot more capital available for the private sector. So pretty quickly, those workers would get absorbed into genuinely use, socially useful niches. Well, I can imagine a lot of our listeners nodding along to that. But the next suggestion, perhaps they won't, especially listeners who might be seniors or going to be seniors soon. Let's talk about Social Security and Medicare. So along with national defense, which includes DOD, State Department, some other things, Social Security and Medicare are the two single biggest items in the budget. Currently, they're each about a trillion dollars a year. Uh, the obvious approach to reducing those, and on previous shows, we've talked about this coming entitlement gap, which represents the likely tax revenue we're, like, we're going to bring in in future decades versus what we have told people we're going to pay them. Uh, in future de decades in terms of entitlement. And remember that the over 65 segment of the U.S. population is set to double in the next 30 to 50 years. People are living longer. So, uh, Bob, again, we're not talking politics. We're talking mechanics. How about rigorous cuts to entitlements using some combination, presumably, of means testing, but also increasing the age for eligibility? Yeah, I mean, I something has to be done. Just mathematically, it doesn't work right now. I mean, people can look at the numbers. The gov the um, the government's own uh, trustees for the Social Security Fund and, and Medicare and so on. I mean, they report it's I, I forget the exact number. It's well over thirty trillion just itself. It depends how far of a time horizon you use and what discount rate you use for, to see the mismatch in um, you know. So it, it's it's like they would need just wonder people understand what we're talking about they would need something like at least $30 trillion right now in assets to invest to just cover the shortfall going forward for the next 75 years of workers, how much is taken out of their paycheck to cover Social Security versus what goes out to the beneficiaries and the same thing for Medicare payments. I think Medicare is actually a, a bigger one now just because of the shifting demographics um, mm -hmm. in terms of the, just the, the mismatch. So again, that's when, when you hear these numbers about the, the entitlement shortfall or, or um, unfunded liabilities, they sometimes use that phrase. They don't mean just how much is it on the hook. They mean the, the difference going forward between what mm -hmm. workers are putting, having taken out of their paychecks versus the outgoing checks. That gap in present value terms is you know bigger than the, the official federal debt. So um, something's got to give. I've now, Jeff, personally, I feel like ethically, it would be better for them to default on the normal debt because that's money people voluntarily lent to the government. So it's like, that's your own fault, buyer beware. Whereas the Social Security and, and Medicare, like there, that money, nobody agreed to that. That was just taken out of your paycheck. And they said, we're going to give you this program. So there, I feel like them changing the rules is more dishonest than just defaulting to a bondholder. But nonetheless, something has to be done. So I thought, I, I ran the numbers a few years ago and there'd be a way you could do something like go to somebody who's 50 years old and just say, look at, do you agree you renounce your future benefits, but then you don't have to pay anymore. Yes. Social Security, Medicare. And I think a lot of people, even like a two to one, three to one in terms of present value might renounce. Like, in other words, even if it, the closer they are to 65, like the worse a deal that would be. Sure. But I think a lot of people would do it just because they know I'm not going to see that money anyway, or, or, or all of it. They're going to you know give me a haircut but also just to unleash, to get rid of that extra tax on the margin 
they know, oh, I could go earn more. And so I, so that's, that's my idea is just to like, at least try letting people voluntarily opt out. And I think a lot of people would do it and that would be, like I say, they would probably be willing to give up more benefits that are in theory on the table as long as they don't have to pay that tax. And I think that would sur- solve the problem of at least diminishing the unfunded liability, but also just unleash people to go ahead and generate more income. Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. First, if the U.S. government were treated like a public corporation and required to account for its liabilities under gap accounting rules, what you call unfunded liabilities would be criminal fraud. Right, exactly. If, if, if the CEO or CFO of a publicly traded SEC-registered U.S. corporation signed off on an audit or a tax return that concealed that degree of future pension obligations, he or she would go to jail <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, under Sarbanes-Oxley and probably even without Sarbanes-Oxley, just under fraud rules. So that's first. So this is a, this is a huge problem. But number two is that, you know, you brought up the ethical component. There's no easy way to do this. I mean, we all... Um, we all are probably going to have to pay one way or another if we're going to get this economy uh, under control. There are an awful lot of seniors who uh, live very modestly by all appearances. They may have a very modest home. They may drive a very modest car. They may not take lavish vacations or spend lavishly. But nonetheless, uh, they have a net worth of two, three million dollars. I mean, that is very, very common in this country. That could be a combination of, of their, you know, owning their home outright. If it's in a highly appreciated area like California or some parts of Florida, it could simply be uh, index funds, 401k funds, all kinds of things. I mean, having a very quiet net worth of, let's say, two to three million dollars is, is exceedingly common in the United States. And the question becomes then, you know, should they be getting 1800 bucks a month from Uncle Sam? Um, you know, that, that's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to say, well, that to argue against saying that's where the haircut should come. But the flip side is they paid in just like anybody else, or maybe their deceased spouse paid in like anybody else. And uh, why should their, their relative frugality or thrift or higher income or whatever it is throughout their lifetime, or maybe even they just inherited it, not always, not always clear, um, you know, why should they be punished? So it's, it's a thorny question, but nonetheless, wouldn't we rather deal with that thorny question mechanically here and now than foist it upon our kids and grandkids? And, and so, uh, you know, we'll get to this after the bullet points, but let's face it, seniors vote and politicians generally don't run on a platform of taking away Social Security and Medicare benefits mm-hmm. from their over 65 would-be constituents. I mean, that's let, that's just a yeah, fact. Yeah, let me just me- make one point, uh, just to follow up on that, Jeff, too. I-, I know probably most of the listeners are sophisticated and already know this, but just to mm-hmm. say it officially, unfortunately, so yeah, we can say it, it's not fair that the government gave them no choice. No, you're participating in this forced saving program we're gonna, that we're administering on your behalf, but that money's already gone, right? Yeah, so the, the way it's they're making you whole is they're doing the same thing to today's workers. And so, like you say, Jeff, it's not, it's not fair that they had their money taken from them at gunpoint when they were working, but likewise, that money is gone. It's not that they put it into productive assets. And now the, you know, the fruit of that is the, out of the dividends of which they're paying you. No, they're just going to today's workers, young people Mm -hmm. and taking money from them to give to you to keep the cycle going. Mm -hmm. So the only way we're going to get out of that is at some point, someone's going to be left holding the bag and, and yes, it's the sooner we do it, the less painful it will be. Right. And those 20 and 30 somethings would say, why am I subsidizing 
uh, a senior with a net worth of two or three million dollars with eighteen hundred bucks a month, they ought to be spending down their assets, uh, you know, in their in their later years of their life. And that's I think that's a fair argument. Um, all right, on to the next uh, big ticket item in the federal budget: defense spending. Uh, it's it's technically listed, meaning the line item to the Department of Defense, and underneath that is the branch, uh, the various branches of the military, including the Coast Guard. Uh, that is between seven and eight hundred billion as an actual line item in the annual budget. But if you factor in a lot of our foreign aid, a lot of our State Department activity, a lot of our clandestine activity uh, in organizations like the CIA, it's actually closer to a trillion dollars. So, given that our so-called defense spending is maybe roughly ten x the rest of the world combined, uh, I would suggest from a mechanical perspective, not arguing foreign policy here, from a mechanical perspective, uh, you could cut that, let's say, in half and radically reduce the footprint of the U.S. military all around the globe. Right. I, th- I think your uh, former boss there, Jeff, one time, I'm going to botch the line. He said it was much more eloquent, but I think somebody asked him about food stamps one time. I'm talking about Dr. Paul, of course. And I think he said something like, well, let's cut the military budget first. And once we do that, then we can worry about cutting, you know, uh, aid to, to mothers trying to feed their kids or something like that. So he like he, he wasn't saying no, like he understood the, the principle involved. And yes, the federal government shouldn't be sending food stamps to people either. But he was saying this is kind of silly if we're quibbling over, you know, certain domestic programs that in the grand scheme aren't that big. If we're going to keep shoveling hundreds of billions of dollars a year, to these major defense contractors for things that aren't even defending us you know you know what i mean like it would be one thing if we really were but that's you know it, it was much more honest when they called it a department of war yeah which they did up until i believe the 1930s so that's more of a question of, of how you view the american american more generally i mean american hegemony comes with a cost since the fall of the soviet union and we don't have the cold war anymore there was supposed to be a peace dividend we have not reaped that we've gone the other direction military spending has increased exponentially and we now find ourselves uh, up against Russia, in a sense, up against China, certainly in terms of the rhetoric, potentially up against Iran. Uh, so the, these are, are, are serious problems. Uh, we are the number one interventionist around the world. So the question becomes, how could we um, whip the defense budget back into shape and make sure that you know, we were doing just exactly what it took to make America safer and not doing all the things we do to create uh, giant mansions for defense contractors in the counties right outside of Washington, D.C., which is a real thing, ladies and gentlemen, a very real thing. So, you know, that uh, cutting defense spending might be more popular than cutting Social Security and Medicare. That's for sure. So let's well, the, yeah, the problem is, as you know, Jeff, like the, the concentrated benefits, you know, dispersed cost sort of thing where. The Congress people who bring home, you know, packages, our military spending provides a lot of jobs in their district, like where those factories are that are making, you know, the aircraft parts or whatever. Like that's to to them, it's a big deal. Whereas, yeah, just shaving back Social Security benefits by 2% is spread over millions of people. Yeah. And as an interesting example of that, look at NASA. When NASA was developing, they made sure that lots of different congressmen got NASA facilities in their districts, and lots of different senators got NASA facilities in their states. So sometimes when you say, well, why does the rocket take off from Florida, but the command center's in Houston and this and that, sometimes that's literally because they were trying to spread out those jobs and perks uh, to make sure that there would be a big constituency for NASA funding in Congress. True story, actually. So what about 
uh, monetary policy. Let's let's go over to the Fed side. When we're talking about fixing the economy, you know, we can get into federal spending, which of, of course is a, is fiscal policy. But what about monetary policy? Here's where the American public might be a little more amenable to saying, "Hey, look, you know, let's get the Fed." to stop effectively bailing out certain segments or certain corporations by buying up their debt, for example, in, in when there's a crisis like there was in 2008. Right, that it's uh, what happened in that crisis. I mean, it's not that it was completely novel, but there was a qualitative increase in the types of things that the Federal Reserve began doing in the 2008 crisis. They weren't simply adjusting the quantity of money or adjusting interest rates for the macroeconomic stability. They were saying, oh, wait, this particular seg- sector of the economy is in trouble. We have to come in and buy mortgage-backed securities because if we don't, a bunch of big mm-hmm. uh, investment banks are going to go down, and we f- consider that unacceptable. So that really did open up the floodgates to the Fed doing all sorts of particular interventions, buying particular asset classes that before would have been considered like, oh, no, you can't micromanage the, the, the uh the appearance of corruption or the posit- or the actuality of corruption is too too great there. The temptation for you to be coming in and you know having the New York Fed buy particular assets, I mean that that used to be considered anathema because no, you can't do that. That's you're picking winners and losers. But now that's gone out the window. So yes, I I think that that's something that the public should be able to get behind, especially because they see what they did in 2008 didn't fix the economy within two years. Right. It would be one thing if everything went back to normal, then they could say, oh, yes, that target intervention ruffled some feathers, some purist libertarian types got up, got you know, in a tizzy. But look, at it worked. But clearly we didn't, quote, fix the economy from the Fed doing those unprecedented actions. We're still in a spot where it's considered, you know, the Fed's sort of up against a wall here. Well, gee, we can't raise interest rates too much because that'll wreck the economy. But on the other hand, look at price inflation. And so I think everybody if they had known what it was going to look like, would have said back in 2008, let those big investment banks go down. They made a bunch of stupid asset purchases. People lent money to home buyers that they knew were lying about their income. That's the penalty in a market economy. It's profit and loss. You got to let losses happen. Well, that's interesting because the crash of 08 was not that long ago. If we have another stock market crash, uh, you know, on that level, combined with the inflation we're suffering now since all the COVID stimulus, I think the American public might be losing faith in, in yet another institution, namely central banks, to effectively manage interest rates, to effectively manage the money supply, uh, to effectively uh, you know, deal with uh, monetary policy in terms of bailing out companies by buying treasury debt. So I think that we're in an interesting spot in American history where maybe people who argue, as we do, that central banks are inherently destructive uh, and, and that we ought to allow, allow money like other goods and services to be created and produced and provided by the marketplace. Maybe we're getting some traction there. So that's going to be interesting. Um, if there's another uh, big crash like 2008, will there be the same clamor for the Fed to do something? And will they be viewed as benevolently as they were back then? You know, there was a, a big period in the 2000s where Alan Greenspan was called the maestro. And Ben Bernanke got a lot of praise for how he handled 2008. I'm not so sure uh, that that would repeat itself this next time around. It feels like we're awfully close to that next time around. Now, this is related to Fed policy, but it's, it's a little bit more fiscal. What about the idea that the Ameri- would the American public ever accept you know, an express policy against any kind of bailouts or subsidies for any industry or any company regardless of the severity of, let's say, the next economic downturn? 
well, I think that they would, where if we're talking mechanically, yes, that, that could be a policy that would be a good thing to do. And it'd be easier, I think, to do a hard, bright line and just say no bailouts, period, rather than saying unless it's, you know, really necessary mm -hmm. or unless the pain would be so great if it were really too big to fail. Because that, that's if you have a hard, you know, bright line, then it's easy to get to get behind that. Just, you know, like if you were going to have free trade and you had a postcard, we're getting rid of all trade barriers. That would be one thing. But when you have a thousand page document explain all the little detailed regulations that just gets silly and unwieldy. So I, I think you're you're right that 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 would be the way to sell it. If you were going to try to make something like that politically feasible, you would just have to have an up or down vote and just say, look, at it, can we agree? No bailouts, period, going forward. And I, th I think that most Americans probably would endorse that. They wouldn't like it if their particular sector got hit. Mm -hmm. But as long as they saw nobody else was getting bailed out, I think they could could live with that. What they wouldn't want to see is that they're made to suffer where somebody else gets bailed out because they had better friends in Washington. Well, it is interesting that when there is, uh, there's an economic crisis, we can go talk about 1929, for example, Herbert Hoover and his Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon at the time. But we can go far more recently into right in the right after the 2008 uh, crisis, we can take sort of a microcosm example, which is the nation of Iceland which is obviously very tiny, uh, fewer than 400,000 people. So, you know, we can't analogize it to big, vast empire, uh, you know, mass democracies like the United States. But nonetheless, uh, when Iceland had its own banking crisis, right on the heels of our crisis here in the United States, it is interesting to look at what they did. Uh, there was a lot of overleveraged real estate development going on in Iceland, which is a pretty, you know, pretty sparse, small country. Well, I mean, it's actually sparsely populated. It's not that small geographically. Uh, but nonetheless, a lot of the creditors for the banks in Iceland and the developers were actually German banks, German commercial banks. So what uh, Iceland allowed to happen was basically the kind of program of austerity which we've been laying out. They allowed all of the companies uh, and banks involved to become insolvent and declare bankruptcy. As part of that bankruptcy process, they, uh, those, the assets of those organizations were sold off and restructured. The management of those organizations were, were fired. The board of directors of those organizations were fired. Uh, new management, new boards came in. And the one silver lining to all of this was that Iceland throughout uh, the, the Eurozone experiment had maintained its own currency, the kroner, rather than joining the Eurozone. It's a member of the EU for trade and travel, but it's not a member of the Eurozone. So it has its own currency, the kroner. As a result of not having the euro, the Icelandic bank was able to simply allow the kroner to float, which made it devalue, depreciate rapidly against other currencies. And so that made it fairly cheap for Icelandic employers to you know, regain employees and pay uh, pay vendors and do other things using Kroner because that was a relatively devalued currency the, during that period. So uh, there's actually a book about this called Deep Freeze by one of our scholars here at the Mises Institute named Philip Bogus. We'll link to that in the show notes. But the point here is that in this sort of microcosm example, in about 18 months, Iceland is able to go through a period of pretty severe pain and unemployment and get back on its feet uh, in, a, in a remarkable way. Now, clearly, Iceland is a wealthy country. Iceland doesn't have a lot of severe poverty. Uh, you know, it had a lot of things in its favor. So I don't want to say that, you know, we could just re replicate that in the United States in terms of the next banking crisis. But nonetheless, I think, Bob, it is worth 
um, considering what Andrew Mellon told President Hoover, which is basically like, look, he said, and I'm quoting Andrew Mellon, the secretary, the Treasury secretary back in the 20s, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmers, liquidate real estate, purge the rottenness out of the system. And it seems like in the United States, all of our fiscal and monetary policy is designed to do the opposite. It's to make sure that this sort of lingers and we kick the can down the road. Yeah, I just want to make sure I know you know this, Jeff, but just to make sure no one misunderstands. The reason we know Mellon said that to Hoover is Hoover in his memoirs recounts this episode and then assures the reader. But I did not listen to his advice because I knew that would be a disaster. So it, it's not that the Hoover administration up, up followed this Mellonite strategy of liquidation. No, Hoover brings that up to the reader to, to say after the fact, look, at I did everything I could, folks. You know, I was the most interventionist yeah. president in history. And, and, and he was. He and wasn't look, just Look lying. how long the Depression lasted. Right. And so it's, you know, it's like, hmm, he's, he's saying he did things differently from his predecessors and he had the worst crisis in history. I wonder if the one had to do with the other. But um, but yeah, so it, it is it would be good. It's too bad Hoover didn't listen to that advice. It, yes, it would have been short term pain. You know, use whatever analogy you want, ripping a Band-Aid off, uh, you know, not taking more alcohol when you just had a had a binge and it's a very bad hangover. But you get over it, that sort of thing. Um, again, it's simple points. But if banks make bad loans, the damage is done. Right. If there's an unsustainable boom period where resources get malinvested is the, is the term that Mises used. That means things went where they shouldn't. If you build a factory somewhere, you build up a house that's too big and in the wrong location, it's hard to undo that mistake. And you don't undo that mistake by the Federal Reserve creating more money. No, that house is in the wrong spot now. And those reasons, the, the lumber and the glass and so on can't easily be taken out of that and moved somewhere else. Usually it's just better to say, OK, we made a mistake. We're going to be permanently poorer relative to what we otherwise would have been had that mistake not been made. But you got to just deal with the consequences. We need to just assess the situation and you need market prices for that. So, yes, if the stock market is crashing, that means something. Let those prices come down. Let people who are on the sidelines, you know, in cash come in and buy those assets up. If, a, if the board of directors and the CEO made horrible decisions, they need to be fired. Mm -hmm. Right. If there's a certain uh, business where one line is just completely non-economic anymore, those people need to be laid off. Those workers need to go elsewhere. It's silly to try to bail people out to, to, you know, have the government or the Fed come in and give them support to continue economic operations that don't make sense, right? If employers are going to a factory that really should be closed, you need to let them get laid off. That's the way you do it in a decentralized economy where there's not a central planner. Well, for our Money Talk 1010 listeners, I know we're going to have Dr. Murphy on to do uh, a show in the future about business cycle theory, but there's a famous saying um, by Warren Buffett where he says, you know, when the tide goes out, we see who's wearing a bathing suit. And what he meant by that, I think, is, is an insight of what we call business cycle theory, which is that when, when money and credit are cheap, when they're easily and readily available, and by cheap, I mean th that central banks intervene to make interest rates lower than they otherwise would be if the marketplace, in other words, just the supply and demand of loanable funds was allowed to operate. So when we have interest rates which are, in, in a sense, artificially low, that makes the cost of borrowing and the cost of doing business artificially cheap. And as a result, a lot of businesses look good on paper and even make money for a while. The question is, what happens when interest rates go up? And the, the firms which are not doing as well, which are more in debt, uh, which are operating more on the margin, tend to go bankrupt, tend to go bust during that period. But there's another piece to the hangover, which is 
that there's been a period of malinvestment during the perceived boom. And that's not always so easy or painless to unwind. For example, if interest rates are very low, uh, Americans tend to respond to that incentive by buying fancier cars, bigger cars, than they would otherwise. So if as a result of that, the Cadillac people say, you know, look at all this demand for Cadillac Escalade. Let's build a giant plant which, which builds luxury SUVs. And then when the ensuing bust occurs and interest rates begin to rise rapidly, all of a sudden demand for Cadillac Escalades drops uh, rapidly. And so what they ought to be making at that point is Ford Fusions or something like that, a car that's more practical uh, and costs a lot less and uses a lot less gas. Well, the problem is that if you've built a factory that has the mechanical production line for Cadillac Escalades, it's not so easy to simply convert that into a factory that builds Ford Fusions. In fact, you may not be able to do that at all. You may have to sell it. You may have to do some sort of fire sale for its constituent parts. And those aren't worth very much because the robots or the production lines or whatever are for big SUVs. And that's not what anybody wants all of a sudden. So there's a lot of money lost in, in this process, which we call malinvestment. And that really ripples through society. Uh, in ways that that we you know are very hard to to identify clearly, but there's there's clearly a cost to all of that. And so I think listeners of Money Talk 1010 are a little bit more interested in understanding money in the economy and what's happening with monetary policy, how it affects them in their lives than than the average radio listener. So we're definitely going to explore this topic more uh, as what appears to be at least a semi permanent inflationary period stays with us. So in the, in the few minutes we have remaining, Bob, I want to I ask you this. What about just, just the political will in this country, where we are? At the, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned the clownish uh, midterm elections. And let's face it, no national politician, and by national, I don't just mean running for president or vice president. I also mean people running for U.S. Congress, U.S. House, or U.S. Senate. Uh, no national politician in this day and age can successfully campaign on a platform of austerity. You know, we want to cut spending. We want to cut your benefits. We want, maybe want to raise your taxes. And we want, you know, things need to be difficult for a few years so that we can reset this phony economy of ours. I mean, that's just an absolute non-starter. And at the end of the day, that, that's on us, the, the, the U.S. population. Yeah, well, it's, I, I don't, it does seem impossible given the, the state of the American public right now. I will say, though, that, um, like I, I did a paper for the Fraser Institute a while back that Canada did that in the late 90s, that they had a debt crisis and, and they got serious and they, uh, you know, they, sla- they actually literally reduced spending, I think, like three years in a row. And like, I don't just mean cut the rate of growth, but they actually brought it down. You know, they did raise taxes, too, but it was like five to one spending cuts to tax hikes. And they completely turned around their budget situation. So, I mean, there are examples of countries that get serious and do it. But unfortunately, it does take you know, a, a crisis or at least an impending crisis for, for them to get serious and do it. So uh, I agree right now, Americans are, you know, they're busy fighting culture war stuff and, I, and those issues are important. But I, I do think that, unfortunately, a, a, an economic crisis is coming and maybe that will be what it takes to get people to snap out of it and maybe they will pay more attention to people. I think what they need to do, though, is if the politicians do want to propose things, it's got to be pretty straightforward and not too complicated. Just, you know, big things like we're going to cut spending 5% next year, period. You know, that's the things like that as opposed to this program or that program, because then people start arguing over the details. Yeah, the irony behind all of this 
is that the pain from, from the, a program of real austerity would be far better and far shorter than the long-term pain we're going to cause ourselves if we continue to borrow, continue to inflate the dollar, continue to increase the national debt. I mean, all of these things are going to have long-term consequences, which are far worse than ripping off the Band-Aid. Every year we wait, every decade we wait, makes it worse. Uh, I remember when George W. Bush entered office as president in 2001, the, uh, the debt was about $5 trillion at the time. Now, that seemed like a huge number, of course. It was only $1 trillion when Reagan entered office, by the way, in 81. Uh, but nonetheless, I think mathematically, mechanically, it still could have been dealt with. We could have dealt with $5 trillion worth of debt. We could have sold assets. We could have raised uh, taxes. We could have increased... Uh, you know, or, or imposed means testing or whatever on entitlements. I mean, there are lots of ways we could have wrestled a $5 trillion bear to the ground. $31 trillion, I think, uh, we're, we're too far behind the curve. And I think that the world knows that we are effectively going to default on this debt. We're not going to pay it back in any meaningful terms. But uh, for, the, for the short term, we have the biggest, baddest military in the world, the biggest, baddest economy in the world. Uh, and so uh, we are still the world's reserve currency for oil and, and, and most, uh, most international clearing of transactions. So uh, we're still doing well in that sense. But I think that, that the $31 trillion number shows the rest of the world that we're just not serious. We're never going to get our fiscal house in order. We're never going to elect a, a Congress or a Senate that wants to deal with this in any meaningful way. And that at some point, whether that's five years from now or 50 years from now, the rest of the world is going to say no mas, and we're not going to buy any more U.S. Treasury debt. And the only you know, you'd have to offer junk bonds for it. So I think that is our future unless we take some of these Band-Aid ripping steps that Bob and I have discussed here today on the show. So all that said, folks... This is the reality. This is where we are as a country. This is what needs to be done to get our economy back on firm footing. So it's up to us uh, to, to be active and try to create a groundswell of public support for these kind of measures. All that said, uh, I want to thank all of our Money Talk 1010 audience for tuning in this week. I hope you stay with the show every Thursday morning from 9 to 10 Eastern on uh, Money Talk 1010. Human Action Podcast audience, head on over to Money Talk if you want to have uh, check out A Fiscal Station, which ho is home, among other things, to a Mises Institute show. And Bob, as always, I want to thank you uh, for joining us this week, and I hope everybody has a fantastic Thanksgiving today. We have so much to be thankful for, those of us who are here in the United States, and we hope all of you have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.